Section 13 of The Works of Robert G. Ingersoll, Volume 4, Lectures, Dresden Edition, published 1900. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Nigel Carrington. The Works of Robert G. Ingersoll, Volume 4, The Devil, Part 2. The Evidence of the Church. The devil was forced to father the failures of God. All the fathers of the church believed in devils. All the saints won their crowns by overcoming devils. All the popes and cardinals, bishops and priests believed in devils. Most of their time was occupied in fighting devils. The whole Catholic world, from the lowest layman to the highest priest, believed in devils. They proved the existence of devils by the New Testament. They knew that these devils were citizens of hell. They knew that Satan was their king. They knew that hell was made for the devil and his angels. The founders of all the Protestant churches, the makers of all the orthodox creeds, all the leading Protestant theologians, from Luther to the president of Princeton College, were and are firm believers in the devil. All the great commentators believed in the devil as firmly as they did in God. Under the scheme of salvation, the devil was a necessity. Somebody had to be responsible for the thorns and thistles, for the cruelties and crimes. Somebody had to father the mistakes of God. The devil was the scapegoat of Jehovah. For hundreds of years, good, honest, zealous Christians contended against the devil. They fought him day and night, and the thought that they had beaten him gave to their dying lips the smile of victory. For centuries the church taught that the natural man was totally depraved, that he was by nature a child of the devil, and that newborn babes were tenanted by unclean spirits. As late as the middle of the sixteenth century, every infant that was baptized was, by that ceremony, freed from a devil. When the holy water was applied, the priest said, I command thee, thou unclean spirit, in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, that thou come out and depart from this infant, whom our Lord Jesus Christ has vouchsafed to call to his holy baptism, to be made a member of his body and of his holy congregation. At that time the fathers, the theologians, the commentators agreed that unbaptized children, including those that were born dead, went to hell. And these same fathers, theologians and commentators, said, God is love. These babes were pure as pity's tears, innocent as their mother's loving smiles, and yet the makers of our creeds believed and taught that leering, unclean fiends inhabited their dimpled flesh. Oh, the unsearchable riches of Christianity! For many centuries the church filled the world with devils, with malicious spirits that caused storm and tempest, disease, accident and death, that filled the night with visions of despair, with prophecies that drove the dreamers mad. These devils assumed a thousand forms, countless disguises in their efforts to capture souls and destroy the church. They deceived sometimes the wisest and the best, made priests forget their vows, they melted virtue's snow in passion's fire, and in cunning ways entrapped and smirched the innocent and good. These devils gave witches and wizards their supernatural powers and told them the secrets of the future. Millions of men and women were destroyed because they had sold themselves to the devil. 
at that time christians really believed the new testament they knew it was the inspired word of god and so believing so knowing as they thought they became insane no man has genius enough to describe the agonies that have been inflicted on innocent men and women because of this absurd belief how it darkened the mind hardened the heart and poisoned life it made the universe a madhouse presided over by an insane god think why would a merciful god allow his children to be the victims of devils why would a decent god allow his worshippers to believe in devils and by reason of that belief to persecute torture and burn their fellow-men christians did not ask these questions they believed the bible they had confidence in the words of christ personifications of evil the orthodox ostrich thrusts his head into the sand many of the clergy are now ashamed to say that they believe in devils the belief has become ignorant and vulgar they are ashamed of the lake of fire and brimstone it is too savage at the same time they do not wish to give up the inspiration of the bible they give new meanings to the inspired words now they say that devils were only personifications of evil if the devils were only personifications of evil what were the angels was the angel who told Joseph who the father of Christ was a personification? Was the Holy Ghost only the personification of a father? Was the angel who told Joseph that Herod was dead a personification of news? Were the angels who rolled away the stone and sat clothed in shining garments in the empty sepulchre of Christ a couple of personifications? Were all the angels described in the Old Testament imaginary shadows, bodiless personifications? If the angels of the Bible are real angels, the devils are real devils. Let us be honest with ourselves and each other and give to the Bible its natural, obvious meaning. Let us admit that the writers believed what they wrote. If we believe that they were mistaken, let us have the honesty and courage to say so. Certainly we have no right to change or avoid their meaning or to dishonestly correct their mistakes timid preachers sully their own souls when they change what the writers of the bible believe to be facts to allegories parables poems and myths it is impossible for any man who believes in the inspiration of the bible to explain away the devil if the bible is true the devil exists there is no escape from this if the devil does not exist the bible is not true there is no escape from this i admit that the devil of the Bible is an impossible contradiction, an impossible being. This devil is the enemy of God, and God is his. Now why should this devil, in another world, torment sinners who are his friends to please God, his enemy? If the devil is a personification, so is hell and the lake of fire and brimstone. All these horrors fade into allegories, into ignorant lies. Any clergyman who can read the Bible and then say that devils are personifications of evil is himself a personification of stupidity or hypocrisy. Does any intelligent man now, whose brain has not been deformed by superstition, believe in the existence of the devil? What evidence have we that he exists? Where does this devil live? What does he do for a livelihood? What does he eat? 
If he does not eat, he cannot think. He cannot think without the expenditure of force. He cannot create force. He must borrow it. That is to say, he must eat. How does he move from place to place? Does he walk or does he fly or has he invented some machine? What object has he in life? What idea of success? This devil, according to the Bible, knows that he is to be defeated, knows that the end is absolute and eternal failure, knows that every step he takes leads to the infinite catastrophe. Why does he act as he does? Our fathers thought that everything in this world came from some other realm, that all ideas of right and wrong came from above, that conscience dropped from the clouds, that the darkness was filled with imps from perdition, and the day with angels from heaven, that souls had been breathed into man by Jehovah. What there is in this world that lives and breathes was produced here. Life was not imported. Mind is not an exotic. On this planet man is a native. This world is his mother. The maker did not descend from the heavens. The maker was and is here. Matter and force in their countless forms, affinities and repulsions, produced the living, breathing world. How can we account for devils? Is it possible that they creep into the bodies of men and swine? Do they stay in the stomach or brain, in the heart or liver? Are these devils immortal, or do they multiply and die? Were they all created at the same time, or did they spring from a single pair? If they're subject to death, what becomes of them after death? Do they go to some other world? Are they annihilated, or can they get to heaven by believing on Christ? In the brain of science, the devils have never lived. There you will find no goblins, ghosts, wraiths, or imps, no witches, spooks, or sorcerers. There the supernatural does not exist. No man of sense in the whole world believes in devils any more than he does in mermaids, vampires, gorgons, hydras, naiads, dryads, nymphs, fairies, or the anthropophagi, any more than he does in the fountain of youth, the philosopher's stone, perpetual motion, or fiat money. There is the same difference between religion and science that there is between a madhouse and a university, between a fortune teller and a mathematician, between emotion and philosophy, between guess and demonstration. The devils have gone, and with them they have taken the miracles of Christ. They have carried away our Lord. They have taken away the inspiration of the Bible and we are left in the darkness of nature without the consolation of hell. But let me ask the clergy a few questions. How did your devil, who was at one time an angel of light, come to sin? There was no other devil to tempt him. He was in perfectly good society, in the company of God, of the Trinity. All of his associates were perfect. How did he fall? He knew that God was infinite, and yet he waged war against him and induced about a third of the angels to volunteer. He knew that he could not succeed, knew that he would be defeated and cast out, knew that he was fighting for failure. Why was God so unpopular? Why were the angels so bad? According to the Christians, these angels were spirits. They'd never been corrupted by flesh, by the passion of love. Why were they so wicked? 
Why did God create those angels, knowing that they would rebel? Why did he deliberately sow the seeds of discord in heaven, knowing that he would cast them into the lake of eternal fire, knowing that for them he would create the eternal prison, whose dungeons would echo forever the sobs and shrieks of endless pain? How foolish is infinite wisdom! How malicious is mercy! How revengeful is boundless love! Again I say that no sensible man in all the world believes in devils. Why does God allow these devils to enjoy themselves at the expense of his ignorant children? Why does he allow them to leave their prison? Does he give them furloughs or tickets of leave? Does he want his children misled and corrupted so that he can have the pleasure of damning their souls? Some of the preachers who have answered me say that I am fighting a man of straw, I am fighting the supernatural, the dogma of inspiration, the belief in devils, the atonement, salvation by faith, the forgiveness of sins, and the savagery of eternal pain. I am fighting the absurd, the monstrous, the cruel. The ministers pretend that they have advanced, that they do not believe the things that I attack. In this they are not honest. Who is the man of straw? The man of straw is their master. In every orthodox pulpit stands this man of straw, stands beside the preacher, stands with a club called a creed in his upraised hand. The shadow of this club falls athwart the open Bible, falls upon the preacher's brain, darkens the light of his reason, and compels him to betray himself. The man of straw rules every sectarian school and college, every orthodox church. He is the censor who passes on every sermon. Now and then some minister puts a little sense in his discourse, tries to take a forward step, down comes the club, and the man of straw demands an explanation, a retraction. If the minister takes it back, good. If he does not, he is brought to book. The man of straw put the plaster of silence on the lips of Professor Briggs, and he was forced to leave the church or remain dumb. The man of straw closed the mouth of Professor Smith, and he has not opened it since. The man of straw would not allow the Presbyterian creed to be changed. The man of straw took Father McGlynn by the collar, forced him to his knees, made him take back his words and ask forgiveness for having been abused. The man of straw pitched Professor Swing out of the pulpit and drove the Reverend Mr. Thomas from the Methodist Church. Let me tell the Orthodox ministers that they are trying to cover their retreat. You have given up the geology and the astronomy of the Bible. You have admitted that its history is untrue. You are retreating still. You are giving up the dogma of inspiration. You have your doubts about the flood and Babel. You have given up the witches and wizards. You are beginning to throw away the miraculous. You have killed the little devils, and in a little while you will murder the devil himself. In a few years you will take the Bible for what it is worth. The good and true will be treasured in the heart. The foolish, the infamous, will be thrown away. The man of straw will then be dead. Of course, the real old petrified orthodox Christian will cling to the devil. He expects to have all of his sins charged to the devil, and at the same time he will be credited with all the virtues of Christ. Upon this showing on the books, upon this balance, 
he will be entitled to his halo and harp what a glorious what an equitable transaction the sorcerer superstition changes debt to credit he waves his wand and he who deserves the tortures of hell receives an eternal reward but if a man lacks faith the scheme is exactly reversed while in one case a soul is rewarded for the virtues of another in the other case a soul is damned for the sins of another this is justice when it blossoms in mercy beyond this idiocy cannot go keep the devils out of children william kingdon clifford one of the greatest men of this century said if there is one lesson that history forces upon us in every page it is this keep your children away from the priest or he will make them the enemies of mankind in every orthodox sunday school children are taught to believe in devils every little brain becomes a menagerie filled with wild beasts from hell the imagination is polluted with the deformed the monstrous and malicious to fill the minds of children with leering fiends with mocking devils is one of the meanest and basest of crimes in these pious prisons these divine dungeons these protestant and catholic inquisitions children are tortured with these cruel lies here they are taught that to really think is wicked that to express your honest thought is blasphemy and that to live a free and joyous life depending on fact instead of faith is the sin against the holy ghost children thus taught thus corrupted and deformed become the enemies of investigation of progress they are no longer true to themselves they have lost the veracity of the soul in the language of professor clifford they are the enemies of the human race so i say to all fathers and mothers keep your children away from priests away from orthodox sunday schools away from the slaves of superstition they will teach them to believe in the devil in hell in the prison of god in the eternal dungeon where the souls of men are to suffer forever these frightful things are a part of christianity take these lies from the creed and the whole scheme falls into shapeless ruin this dogma of hell is the infinite of savagery the dream of insane revenge it makes god a wild beast an infinite hyena it makes christ as merciless as the fangs of a viper save poor children from the pollution of this horror protect them from this infinite lie i admit that there are many good and beautiful passages in the old and new testament that from the lips of christ dropped many pearls of kindness of love every verse that is true and tender i treasure in my heart every thought behind which is the tear of pity i appreciate and love but i cannot accept it all many utterances attributed to christ shock my brain and heart they are absurd and cruel take from the new testament the infinite savagery the shoreless malevolence of eternal pain the absurdity of salvation by faith the ignorant belief in the existence of devils the immorality and cruelty of the atonement the doctrine of non-resistance that denies to virtue the right of self-defence and how glorious it would be to know that the remainder is true compared with this knowledge how everything else in nature would shrink and shrivel what ecstasy would be to know that god exists that he is our father and that he loves and cares for the children of men 
to know that all the paths that human beings travel, turn and wind as they may, lead to the gates of stainless peace. How the heart would thrill and throb to know that Christ was the conqueror of death, that at his grave the all-devouring monster was baffled and beaten forever, that from that moment the tomb became the door that opens on eternal life. To know this would change all sorrow into gladness, Poverty, failure, disaster, defeat, power, place and wealth would become meaningless sounds to take your babe upon your knee and say, Mine and mine forever. What joy to clasp the woman you love in your arms and to know that she is yours and forever. Yours, those suns darken and constellations vanish. This is enough to know that the loved and dead are not lost, that they still live and love and wait for you, to know that Christ dispelled the darkness of death and filled the grave with eternal light. To know this would be all that the heart could bear. Beyond this, joy cannot go. Beyond this, there is no place for hope. How beautiful, how enchanting death would be. How we would long to see his fleshless skull. What rays of glory would stream from his sightless sockets, and how the heart would long for the touch of his stilling hand. The shroud would become a robe of glory, the funeral procession a harvest home, and the grave would mark the end of sorrow, the beginning of eternal joy. And yet it were better far that all this should be false than that all of the New Testament should be true. It is far better to have no heaven than to have heaven and hell. Better to have no God than God and devil. Better to rest in eternal sleep than to be an angel and know that the ones you love are suffering eternal pain. Better to live a free and loving life, a life that ends forever at the grave, than to be an immortal slave. The master cannot be great enough to make slavery sweet. I have no ambition to become a winged servant, a winged slave, better eternal sleep. But they say, if you give up these superstitions, what have you left? Let me now give you the declaration of a creed. Declaration of the free. We have no falsehoods to defend. We want the facts. Our force, our thought, we do not spend in vain attacks and we will never meanly try to save some fair and pleasing lie. The simple truth is what we ask, not the ideal. We've set ourselves the noble task to find the real. If all there is is naught but dross, we want to know and bear our loss. We will not willingly be fooled by fables nursed. Our hearts by earnest thought are schooled to bear the worst and we can stand erect and dare all things, all facts that really are. We have no God to serve or fear, no hell to shun, no devil with malicious leer. When life is done, an endless sleep may close our eyes, a sleep with neither dreams nor sighs. We have no master on the land, no king in air. Without a manacle we stand, without a prayer. Without a fear of coming night, we seek the truth, we love the light. We do not bow before a guess, a vague unknown, a senseless force we do not bless in solemn tone. When evil comes, we do not curse or thank because it is no worse. 
when cyclones rend, when lightning blights, tis naught but fate. There is no god of wrath who smites in heartless hate. Behind the things that injure man there is no purpose, thought, or plan. We waste no time in useless dread, in trembling fear. The present lives, the past is dead, and we are here, all welcome guests at life's great feast. We need no help from ghost or priest. Our life is joyous, jocund, free, not one a slave who bends in fear the trembling knee and seeks to save a coward soul from future pain. Not one will cringe or crawl for gain. The jewelled cup of love we drain, and friendship's wine now swiftly flows in every vein with warmth divine. And so we love and hope and dream that in death's sky there is a gleam. We walk according to our light, pursue the path that leads to honour's stainless height, careless of wrath or curse of God or priestly spite, longing to know and do the right. We love our fellow man, our kind, wife, child and friend. To phantoms we are deaf and blind, but we extend the helping hand to the distressed. By lifting others we are blessed love's sacred flame within the heart and friendships glow while all the miracles of art their wealth bestow upon the thrilled and joyous brain and present raptures banish pain we love no phantoms of the skies but living flesh with passions soft and soulful eyes lips warm and fresh and cheeks with health's red flag unfurled the breathing angels of this world the hands that help are better far than lips that pray. Love is the ever-gleaming star that leads the way, that shines not on vague worlds of bliss, but on a paradise in this. We do not pray or weep or wail. We have no dread, no fear to pass beyond the veil that hides the dead, and yet we question, dream and guess, but knowledge we do not possess. We ask, yet nothing seems to know. We cry in vain. There is no master of the show who will explain or from the future tear the mask. And yet we dream and still we ask. Is there beyond the silent night an endless day? Is death a door that leads to light? We cannot say. The tongueless secret locked in fate we do not know. We hope and wait. End of part two.